0: warriors in their own words is brought to you by the Honor Project, committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. This presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. General Frank Pete Everest was a record setting U.S. Air Force test pilot. As a fighter pilot in World War II, he flew over 150 combat missions. He then went on to lead the Air Force flight test program, flying with other legendary pilots like Chuck Yeager and George Welch. From 1950 to 1956, he flew an average of eight newly designed aircraft a month, setting records like taking the Bell X-1 to an altitude of 73,000 feet and the X-2 to a speed of over 1,900 miles per hour, making him the fastest man alive. We interviewed Pete Everest, and he told us great stories of those pioneering days of experimental aircraft and daring test pilots.
1: When I was a youngster, I used to watch airplanes over my home in West Virginia, flying, and one of the Characters that used to do a lot of flying was Skyline Scotty and I lay in my backyard and watched him do acrobatics and that's what I want to do with my life is to fly. So I did all my education towards that goal and then I was attending West Virginia University and when war broke out and I had gotten my private pilot license through the CPT program And so I entered the Air Force and uh, was trained as an Aviation Cadet. Graduated, got my wings and my commission in uh, 1942, and became a fighter pilot. And I checked out in P-40s in Baltimore, and then got our squadrons together, and was sent over to Africa to fight the Rommel and his ground forces. And I flew 100 missions there in Africa and Italy, came back to the States, was stationed in Florida as an instructor pilot for other pilots who were coming into the P-40 program, and got fed up with that and volunteered for combat and went to China. And China, uh, shot up a couple airplanes on the ground, but then I got shot down.
2: Can you tell us
1: about that? How did that happen? Well, very foolishly. I shouldn't admit to this, but I will. I was squadron commander, and uh, in the morning I'd gone out with uh, three other guys, a flight of four, and our group commander had signed the four squadron commanders different sectors in China to keep covered. And we had to keep the bridges knocked out and airplanes off the airfields in your particular sector. And my sector was Nanking, and up the Yangtze River. And I'd flown up there and found a huge truck farm, and we'd shot up a bunch of trucks. And then we were coming home, and I had two airplanes on one side of the Yangtze River and two airplanes on the other side, and we were looking for ships, shipping. And what the Japs did, they would dig uh, out replacements alongside the riverbank and camouflage these boats. And when we spot one, well, I'd make a note on the map thinking intensely to come back and finish up the truck farm and then come down the river and knock off some boats. So that afternoon, I brought the whole squadron, 12 airplanes up. We finished up the tr- truck farm, shot up all the trucks, and then uh, I took my flight down the river where we had spotted the boat. And we shot up a couple boats, and I found another one. And I had located, and so I had my flight, and I put him in trail formation to start making passes on this boat. So I made the first pass, and usually you're looking to pop the boilers, and then you see the steam come out. Well, I made this pass, and I didn't pop the boilers, and that made me angry, so I racked my airplane around and slowed down and came in on that ship and started rudder walking to spray it with our 50 calibers. I still didn't get any steam. Apparently, the boilers were down. But a machine gun nest got me real good. He hit my after cooler, which permitted steam to come back and started to scald, my, scald me. And so I pulled up and got on the other side of the river and bailed out. So I became a prisoner of war. And uh, unfortunately, you have a, a pointy talkie which is a little book was has Chinese characters and, and English, so you can talk to the Chinese people. So we were, we were able to offer them $20,000 in gold if they get us back to friendly territory. So I'm going through this with the Chinese people, and they said, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it was the Chinese puppet troops that were working for the Japanese that picked me up. So they said, we'll get you back. So that night they shaved me and they gave me a little Chinese putty uniform and one of those Chinese hats. The next morning we got on a horse and we headed north. And so uh, after a few miles on this horse, I said, Boy, we're going the wrong direction. I said, I want to go south, not north. North is a bad place. He said, No, no. We got troops here. We got to go north and get up around the troops back then. Okay. So I'm on this horse for 12 hours. And I hadn't ridden a horse for a good many years, and boy was I sore. But we ended up in Nanking that night, and they said, just be careful, don't say anything, we'll get you out of here. And the next morning I woke up, and there was about a six foot Japanese general standing over me with his sword, punching me, get up, you're a prisoner of war. So I lasted for about the last three months of the war. When I heard that Japan had capitulated, surrendered, the commandant of the camp was a little colonel. He wasn't as tall as I was, and I'm small. And he wore a big long sword he kept tripping over. He had big handlebar mustaches. So when we heard the rumor that Jap had surrendered, I demanded an audience with the, the camp commandant. And they said, okay. So they had an interpreter in there. So I went in and saluted him, you know. And he said, what do you want? Through the interpreter. And I said, I understand that Japan has surrendered. And if so, I demand that you turn this camp over to me. <laughs> the poor little guy, he really, his eyes got big. And he couldn't imagine some, I was a, a captain, but I'd been promoted. and I didn't know I'd been promoted. He couldn't imagine some guy doing it so he would jabber 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 with all these other officers and finally says no i can't do that i said i'm not asking you to do it i said i demand that you do it. he said no i'm not going to permit that i said Why? he said well i have so many fanatical guards he said were i to turn the camp over to you they would run amuck and kill half the people if not all of them in the camp he says so we're just going to continue as is Until you're contacted.
2: You were shot down in a P-51, and the P-51 was notoriously vulnerable at low level. You guys knew about about this—the oil cooler and the Mm -hmm. radiator—but there was nothing you could—you couldn't vary your tactics.
1: Well, like I said, I very foolishly racked my airplane around and slowed it down because I didn't see any enemy fire on the first pass, and I was rudder-walking in. So I got stupidly too slow, and I should have backed off and made a high-speed run in there. But yes, the Mustang was more vulnerable than perhaps the other airplanes, the P-40, and we didn't have jugs, P-47s, which uh, was a real tough bird to shoot down. So that was my own mistake.
2: So the tactic wasn't a P-51 on doing air-to-ground work. You come in fast, make one pass and get the hell out? Get
1: out. You should do that. When I foolishly did not do that. I had a new guy with me. He'd just been assigned, so I was showing him how to do it. I showed him how to do it, (laughs) how not to do it.
2: Okay. so you come back to the States. now. A lot of guys were getting out of the military at this time, but you didn't. Could you tell us about that?
1: US, like I mentioned before, I love to fly. And uh, so I wanted to stay in the Air Force. And I like to fly different airplanes. And during the time that I got my wings until I was shot down, which would be about two and a half years, every time I had a chance, I'd fly a different airplane. And when I was stationed in Florida, between tours, I flew the A-20, the A-24, A-25, B-25. So I'd racked up different airplanes during that tour. And then I went to China. <clears throat> when I came back, I was assigned to a redistribution center, which was at that time down somewhere in Alabama. Presumably, the people who were reassigning uh, the various pilots who wanted to stay in looked at their background and say, well, this guy, he's got a civil engineer degree, we'll make him a civil engineer at the base. Or this guy has a law degree, so we'll make him a lawyer. And so on and so on. Because I had flown these several different type airplanes, presumably they assumed I might make a good test pilot. So I was assigned to right field under the flight test division, who was then commanded by Colonel Al Boyd. There were three of us that were assigned to the Flight Test Division. And all three of us were fighter pilots, so we were assigned to the fighter section. But we reported to Colonel Boyd, and he, in front of his desk, we stood at rigid attention. And he looked up and he said, I didn't ask you guys, I don't want you guys. You're on three month probation, and after that, you'll probably be out. So we saluted and turned around and went out. Of the three, I was the only one that was kept on. The other two both got out of service. Why I was kept on was never explained, but I was eager to fly, and I flew a lot and checked out in a bunch more different type of airplane. I think Colonel Boyd was watching this on the monthly reports, flying time reports. Because eventually, two other outfits had requested me be assigned to them, and I had turned down one and he had turned down the other without telling me about it. So after three months probation, I was in, and uh, things went very well after that.
2: What was the early community of, of test pilots? This was still the Army Air Corps at the time, right? Yeah. I mean, was there a formal training program test pilots went through?
1: Yes. <clears throat> It was no longer Army Air Corps, they had become U.S. Air Forces, but it wasn't separated from the Army yet. But they had formed a test pilot school. But you went to two courses. They have one that's called a performance course, and that's how you learn how to check out a new airplane on performance characteristics. That will be speed, altitude, and cruise control, how far it goes, in other words. And it's very tenacious. You try to fly your test within one mile an hour uh, on airspeed, and you try to fly it within uh, 50 feet on assigned altitude. So you learn its range, you learn its speed, and you learn its maneuvering characteristics but that mostly is covered later in what they call stability course and uh, that's when you learn how it maneuvers learn its dynamic stability in both directional lateral pitch and roll and it's probably the best course because it really Determines the good aspects of an airplane, particularly in fighters, on maneuverability. Uh, Of course, the bombers and the cargoes and helicopters uh, have different test programs. They're mostly on the bombers with uh, range, uh, the stability on dropping weapons, and on the cargo on range and and the load carrying capability, and on helicopters on stability and how well they perform. And you do other things too in the, in the cockpit, uh, the instrumentation layout, the controls. However, during the initial years that we were at Wright Field, I was at Wright Field, we developed what we call a HIAD, which is the Handbook Instruction for Aircraft Developers. And it more or less standardized the layout of a cockpit. The the hand controls, the throttle controls, the flap controls, where you put the instrumentation on the attitude indicator, airspeed indicator, altitude indicator, engine instruments, oil pressure instruments. So that was more or less became standard. And it became easier uh, later on to go from one airplane to another because you knew if it was a fighter that you had a stick here, throttles here, Landing gear here, flaps here, and so you could transition fairly easily. The most important part was handling characteristics, stability, and performance. In fighters, you got to have a pretty stable airplane because you're tracking to try to shoot down an enemy airplane, another airplane. Also, you're, if it's an air-to-ground bird, you have to be stable on dropping bombs or shooting rockets. So you go through these these characteristics and you determine how maneuverable the airplane is, and then you come up with recommendations for an example, in the first f84s uh, they were straight winged once they got into service though, so we started losing a bunch of them, and the, we were pulling the wings off, and we weren't too sure why i ran the uh, stability test on the F-84 and we found out that when you're maneuvering and you're pulling back on the stick, you had certain like you wanted to have 8 pounds per G 1 G 8 pounds, 2 G 16 pounds and so on up and so you're pulling 7 G which is a max uh, the airplanes were designed for 7.33 G that you'd be seven eight or fifty six pound but on the f84 when you got about the four or five g's the control forces reversed and you had to push forward to keep from over g in the airplane and we found this out through this test and so we redesigned the flight control system we put a bob weight on the stick so when you're pulling cheese, the bob weight would increase the stick forces. So we solved that problem in that manner. So it's the stability phase of a of the testing program resolved the hand characteristic the problems of a hand characteristics of the airplanes. Of course these days they got simulation computers and they can program these things in to the simulators and determine if you're going to have problems before. you flight flight testing. For example, the F-16, without computers to control the three stability parameters, could not fly. It was a very unstable airplane. So it's testing per se today because computers and simulation uh, has become very uh, sophisticated unless demanding uh, on test pilots, per se.
2: When you were at Wright Wright Field at that time, is that where you flew your first jet? Yes. Could you tell us what that airplane was and what that was like, please?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The first jet was the old P-59. They only produced, I think, about 60 of them because its performance was very poor. But of course I was uh, the new guy in the outfit and so they weren't letting me fly the P eighties that they had. And that was the uh, the latest jet that we had and 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 a very good airplane for those days. So they had an old P P fifty nine sitting around down there and I said, Well, let me check on that and they went, okay, so uh that's my first jet, you know, and I'm excited about getting in this P fifty nine. So I jumped in it and took off, leveled out about two or 3,000 feet to get max speed. Both throttles were full forward, you know, I'm sitting there and waiting. I got to about 330 miles an hour, and things weren't going any faster, and I kept checking to make sure my gear was up, my flaps were up. And all of a sudden, I see an airplane out to the right, and it's a Mustang inverted with Jaeger in there, thumbing his nose at me as it goes by. <laughs> so I was a disappointing a disappointment flying the P-59. But the later, uh, not too much later, I got to check out in the P-80, and that was, a, that was an exciting event because it was performance was outstanding as compared to the P-59.
2: What's it like to transition from a, from a prop to a jet? I understand it's much quieter in the cockpit, but what about the control forces?
1: It is much quieter. There's less, almost nil on vibration, and it's very uh, peaceful. The control forces and the p were boosted controls, hydraulically boosted control. So there wasn't any problem there. Uh, on takeoff, you'll notice mostly that you have a little over control laterally. And you'll notice the guys when they're first checking out, so their wings w- would uh, w- walk a little bit. But after you get used to that, there's hardly any problem.
2: When did you uh, first? Meet the F 86.
1: Can you describe that? Well, that was a while I was still at right field. They had the X F 86 that they brought in. It was a low performer because it had a J 35 engine. And uh, we would take it to various air shows uh, when it was in commission. I had one air show in Miami, but it had slats on it that were mechanically locked uh, along with other. Deficiencies, and when I went to Miami f- to put on there, so usually you did some higher rates of roll and you did some high ma- high maneuvering, but I couldn't get my left slat to lock. And if you were to maneuver in a high G load, you liable to uh, pop that slat slat completely off of the wing. So it was restricted in that, in those conditions. And later on we got the F-86A in in the right field and we were testing it and it was a much better airplane. We put on some pretty good air shows with it.
2: How did you feel about the F-86?
1: The The F-86 was a great airplane. We had the uh, swept wing F-84, the bent wing we called it, and then the F-84 straight wing And you kind of climbed into those airplanes. But with the F-86, like the Mustang, you felt like you put them on instead of climbing into them. They fit you better. They fit you well. So it was enjoyable to fly it. And of course, being a a swept-wing airplane, it was high performance, much better than the the swept-wing F-84F. It was more maneuverable, and and you could uh, climb to a faster altitude and dive and better speed brakes and this sort of thing. The F-84F was designed and built for a ground support airplane. And it was built for 9Gs, which made it very heavy and not very maneuverable. Although you could get a supersonic in a dive, it wasn't at all for an air-to-air airplane like the 86 was built to be.
2: But the F-86A, as I understand it, it still had standard elevators
1: on it. Yes, it had boosted hydraulic flight control systems. And uh, we found in uh, in Korea that at high speeds it wasn't as maneuverable. So then we determined to put a flying tail, what we call a flying tail, which was tying in the stabilizer and eliminating the elevator as you know in the old days. And the flying tail made it a great airplane. And we also reconfigured the slats. And the slats became maneuverable slats. At the high G's, they would come out and increase your lift. So that made it an even better
0: airplane. In 1951, Pete Everest was transferred to Muroc Air Force Base in the California desert the primitive airfield would eventually become Edwards Air Force Base, with Everest as the chief Air Force test pilot and head of the Flight Test Operations Division. Colonel Al Boyd,
1: who was the director of flight test at Wright Field, was assigned to command Muroc Air Force Base and to develop it into the flight test center. Obviously, at uh, Muroc, the weather is better. You don't have low ceilings, no rain or snow to speak of. And it's almost uh, 365 days a year you could do flight testing. A lot of times the right field you have rain, snow, and you can't endeavor to take off and test uh, because of those poor weather conditions. So when he went to uh, Edwards, he selected various people to accompany him out there, uh, not only as test pilots, but also for administration, supply, uh, maintenance, and what have you. Uh, fortunately, I was, had made it, so he had selected me to accompany him, along with Jaeger and a few other people. That was an uh, interest to me because, of course, I wanted to go out to Edwards because I knew that it was going to be the main base for flight testing. Whereas Wright Field would be uh, the more uh, mundane type of flight testing and checking new synthetic tires synthetic oils uh different types of wings magnesium wings and uh, all-weather testing to check out uh, how they performed under cold weather conditions and, and the new types of instrumentation uh ground control approaches gca ils instrument landing system approaches that would all be done at right field and i would preferred to do the testing on the newer airplanes. So that's why I wanted and went to Muroc Air Force Base.
2: So what was Muroc like? It was in
1: very poor shape. It had been set up as a base for World War II to uh, use as a bombing range and testing range for the crews that were in bombers and getting ready to go overseas. As a matter of fact, they had a silhouette of a battleship that I had set up out on the lake bed. And they could come in and drop bombs and strafe and rockets, this sort of thing, as, uh, to check out in the system. The buildings were in uh, old tar paper shacks and in very poor shape, uh, where little uh, or no base housing to speak of. They, the gentle boys later got uh, Wery housing and Capehart housing and so uh, luckily he thought well enough of me to put me in one of ten houses up on the hill next to the commanding officers quarters and uh, they call it snob hill so uh, i guess i was a snob in those days then all the new airplanes started pouring in into edwards and it became kind of hectic because when i came out we only had about nine pilots and we had a few bomber pilots, a few cargo pilots, a couple of helicopter pilots, and a few fighter pilots. And we were flying the various tests, but most of us flew about everything. Like I was flying uh, the B-50s and B-29s, and some of the bomber guys were flying the P-80s on chase missions. And then we had a few of the X-1 series that we were running rocket tests on. And uh, as the years went by, we would get the F-94, A, B, C, uh, the F-86, uh, E, F, H, and D. The D was an interceptor model. We have the uh, P-88, which is the forerunner of the F-101. We have the F-100, F-101, F-102, and F-105. And then we, of course, got uh, the B-47B and uh, C-130 cargo airplanes and all kinds of new helicopters. So we became quite busy, and I had to build up the flight test section to accompany these new systems. And I uh, then broke it out into sections, fighter section, cargo section, which included helicopters, and bomber section. And they more or less. Became specialized in those categories.
2: Going back to the F-86, were you, when you were going through uh, your course at back at Wright Field or later on, uh, were you made aware of the German experiments into swept wing technology? Was that part of your training? Yes. Could you? What were they told? What were you told about that? And,
1: well, swept wing, obviously, permits less drag. You don't have all that garbage out in front of you, alongside of you. And also, with a swept wing, it permits the airflow to slide over the wing without forming so much turbulence as you would with a straight wing airplane. The disadvantage is range. Because of the straight wing airplane, the wing loading is, is lower and this increases your range because you can go further and carry a heavy payload and there's a lot of variable engineering results that have to be computed out like in a straight-wing airplane you could not go supersonic because the drag was so high and and you lose uh, loss of control when you're started to reach uh, about 0.8 Mach number the turbine had become so bad that you uh, couldn't break through the barrier. With a bent-wing airplane, this all smoothed out and you could take uh, the F-86 and F-84F and uh, 100 series airplanes, supersonic and dives, and of course in the 100 series you can go supersonic straight and level. So. That became, obviously, uh, a standard development program to increase the performance. And it later was applied to the bombers and the cargo airplanes, also, because it reduced drag.
2: Now, at the same time, you were also involved in the X programs.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: How was there feedback from those programs onto the Operational, were there anything learned from the X-1 or X-2 series that they applied to the...
1: uh... Certainly. With the X-1, it was uh, at Edwards before we had moved out there. And Jaeger was out there, TDY, and I went out TDY for the altitude work in the X-1. The X-1, once it became supersonic, then we knew we could have airplanes that could go supersonic because many people felt that once you try to get through the sound barrier that the airplane would disintegrate and obviously it, with the proved that uh, it it would not so that opened up a whole new ball of wax for aircraft designers knowing that you could safely go supersonic and then also you would learn that how the airplane responded at the higher altitudes and at the higher speeds for lateral control, pitch control, and uh, direction control. For example, Jaeger and Ridley, the engineer on the X-1 supersonic test, had a problem controlling the airplane at the high speeds. They had a stabilator that was movable, but it was not tied in with a control stick. And they finally predetermined that they could reset the stabilator and uh, get better performance. And then even then, we learned they had a toggle switch on the control wheel that you could move the stabilator. So that opened up new avenues uh, with the uh, F-86F, which we put the stabilator on without the elevator. To have better control at the high speed and higher altitude, so the X-1 was really a, a fantastic research program that resulted in opening up new areas of engineering relative to high-speed airplanes later on.
2: Now, you you mentioned before that the first time you ever went supersonic in an airplane was an F-86. Mm. Could you explain how that occurred?
1: Well, that was because I was sent out to, to North American to pick up an 86 to bring back to Wright Field to uh, do some testing. And so I took off from from North American in LA and flew to uh, Muroc Air Force Base. And uh, of course you knew that the airplane was supersonic, so you get up to 35, 40,000 feet over Muroc and you turn it upside down and put it in a dive and, You watch your airspeed indicator, and when it jumped, then you knew you passed compressibility and were supersonic. And then you call the tower and say, did you get a supersonic boom? Yes, sir. Then you knew you were supersonic.
0: The test pilots of those early days needed to be fearless. But sometimes their aggressive spirit could lead to disaster.
2: Could you explain the the, what happened the day that, that George Welch, the North American pilot, was killed in F-86? Well,
0: George
1: Welch was the chief uh, test pilot for North American Aviation. He was uh, quite a guy. Uh, he was one of two pilots at Pearl Harbor who took off and shot down some Jap Zeroes. I've forgotten how many he shot down. But after the war, he got out, and because of his notoriety, the North, North American party as a as a test pilot and then became a chief test pilot. Uh, He was so aggressive, you might say, fearless. And uh, you really don't want to hire people who are fearless. You want to hire people who respect the bad parts of an airplane and what it might do to you so that you don't Your aggressiveness does not overcome your good sense. George Welch had flown the F-100 on his first flight, and it was the first time in the history in any aviation that the airplane went supersonic. And uh, now, of course, the F-100 was the first airplane to be able to go supersonic in level flight. So we took it from there. I did the performance and the stability control on the F-100. But the contractor has certain test uh, points that he has to meet. And one of the most significant ones and the the most dangerous one is to do a 7.33 G max rolling pullout. Uh, That's the ultimate uh, on fighters. And so George had gone up in the morning of this particular day and put the airplane in the dive and had pulled, I think, 7.1 G in a max rolling pullout, but he didn't meet the 7.33. Well, instead of waiting to analyze the data, because the airplane was fully instrumented, instead of waiting, he wanted to go ahead and redo the test that afternoon to get it over with. And uh, they approved it, unfortunately. So he went up and um, put in a dive and got to 7.33 Gs. and at uh, max rolling uh, ailerons full max and the airplane came unglued and george was uh, ejected it just uh, but his chute came out and he landed and they called us and said we had an emergency and i was there and i grabbed an h-21 helicopter to go out and pick him up and take him to the hospital And he had told the people on the ground that saw him come down in the parachute to be careful that I was, I'm severely injured. But I think by the time I got to him, he probably was uh, already dead because I think he had ruptured some of his internal aorta, arteries, and bled to death internally. So that was a tragedy, and he was a great guy. And uh, we wished that he had not been so fearless as to wait to reduce the data, which would have proven that the F-100 that we had in the early production did not have enough vertical stabilizer. And uh, by not having enough vertical stabilizer, you would get into an oscillation and overjeat it and the airplane would come apart. So we redesigned the vertical tail, put more tail, uh, vertical tail on it and then became a safer safer airplane.
3: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction,
2: Now, at this time you were also in the X program. You would have been flying the X-1 at altitude. You took it to the highest it, it ever got, I understand.
1: That be, we did that before we transferred to Edwards. Uh, after, right after Edgar did the supersonic work, I went out there TDY and did the altitude work. And then we came back. The X-1, right program was spread out over a good many years, and we had troubles and then go back to the factory for modification or repair. And so you don't say that uh, you're continually doing it. Like I think I only had 13 flights in the X-1 and uh, a couple in the X-1B and then uh, in the X-2 with the rocket airplane. But we had trouble, like I had a engine blow up, one of the rocket engines blew up, one in the X-1, and uh, so it went back to the factory for repair. And then we had uh, the most serious problem was the tanks blowing up, uh, one over Niagara Falls, and one over uh, on the on the ground at Edwards. And we had to go in and redesign the tanks and the seals on the LOX tanks that, uh, or transfer, transfer the locks to the, the rocket. So we all had, had all kinds of problems. The X-1 series airplane had spread out through a good many years. And I had a lot of problems with the X-2, and it was spread out through a good many years before it was completed.
2: So you were in between, in all this time, you were also test flying fighter-type aircraft as well. So you were never really segregated, the testing programs are not segregated between fighter aircraft and X aircraft. They were no, all, it was no.
1: Just the fighter guys would fly the X airplanes.
2: Now, you, you said you had an explosion and you jettisoned the airplane. Now, you were in the bomber at the time, or you were in the
1: cockpit? I was in the cockpit uh, of the X-1D getting ready to drop in the belly of the B-50, which is the mother airplane we used to drop the airplane from. We had previously lost the X-1 Number 3 on the ground due to an internal explosion. And it had burned up and severely injured Joe Cannon, the chief test pilot for Bell aircraft from Burns. He was in the cockpit the same way. Luckily, the X-1 Number 1, 2, and 3 had side doors that you enter and exit the cockpit and he was on the ground and got out to the side. If he had been uh, like the X-1A, B, C, D you get in from the top, he would have lost his life. So I was in the cockpit of the X-1D getting ready to drop for a power flight. The canopy was on and I was pressurizing the locks tanks. What you do, you pressurize locks to meet with the nitrogen to go back and fire the rockets. And as I opened up the pressurization valve in the lock tank, we had an explosion in the rear end behind the cockpit. So I got the cockpit uh, canopy off, jumped up in the front of the airplane and to the bomber, the B-50. And I looked back and we could see uh, you couldn't tell whether it was smoke or whether it was locks because locks uh, obviously boils off so I turned to Jack Ridley and I said jettison the airplane because we had had a severe explosion before and I didn't want to risk the cruise of the uh, KB-50 or for that matter myself no. so we jettisoned the airplane in the lake bed and so we lost that one but they later determined that with was Problem was with the seals, and as the locks would freeze, the seals they would, with an impact, would explode and uh, rupture the tanks, which would cause a disaster. Uh, which we had several disasters. Uh.
2: Now, what about the uh, X2? Now the, now, the X2 incorporated the swept wing. And could, could, uh, this is a this was a very dangerous program too. I mean, we lost. Uh, briefly
1: describe the X-2, how it differed from the X-1? Well, the X-2 were designed to reach uh, higher Mach numbers, to go up to uh, Mach 3 and be stable so that you won't become uncontrollable like in the straight wing X-1 series. It was a, a new type of design and to save weight, they had no landing gear. You had a skid, a main skid, and two little outrigger skids and a nose wheel. All the X birds, uh, the rocket X birds, half of their weight was in propellants for the rockets. So, after you used your propellant, propellants up, the airplane more or less became a glider and you glided back inland in on the lake bed. To reduce weight with the skid, it still had to meet certain criteria. Uh, Like in landing, uh, it's supposed to have landed at at a a landing impact of 8 feet per second per second, which was more or less very stringent because that was more or less like landing a fighter on a carrier aircraft. And to uh, accomplish this, they had a, a long strut, which was on the skid. Unfortunately, some of the earlier problems we had with it was that the airplane became laterally unstable on the ground as you were skidding along and you end up dragging wingtips and ground looping a couple of times because of this problem. So we looked at our data and determined that on all the landings that we had with the X2, they were very gentle. And so I said, well, why don't we reduce the length of that strut? Because we don't need this 8 feet per second per second landing criteria, reduce the length of the strut, which will make it more, more stable during the, the, the skid out. So they did, and that solved the problem. But we had widened the skid, which increased the weight. We had added uh, stronger, wingtip skids, that also increased the weight. So once we determined that it was easy and we could control the airplane on the run out, we reduced the skid and the weight and reduced the wingtip skid, which put us in real good position then. And we could continue with the, with, the, with the program without having to be overly concerned about landing the thing. A couple of times I thought I was gonna roll up in a knot once you catch a wingtip, you didn't know what was going to happen. It could tumble on you.
2: I understand that uh, Gene Ziegler was killed in the X two. Gene Ziegler, who was the
1: yeah, yeah, Skip Ziegler was the chief test pilot for uh, for Bell Aircraft. Real fine guy, and he did the uh, the initial test drops for the X two, and then. He got killed in the X-2 up in Buffalo, and uh, so I took over and did the rest of the testing.
2: But after you left, the the major app was killed? Yeah. How did that happen?
1: We felt that I could have gone faster. Uh, you, You have to understand that you're only flying for a few minutes before you run out of pellets. So your flight path has to be very precise. And the instruments are lagging all the time. So you really don't know when to start your pushover. And you usually start, at, uh, like if you say you think at 65,000, you're actually at 70,000. So you have to start pushing over at 60,000 to make We also felt that we weren't scrubbing the tanks out. And we had, uh, like in both the tanks, you had probes, uh, which the fuel went through back to the rocket engine. So if we knocked those probes off, we could probably scrub out the tanks and get another few seconds of power flight to increase the speed. So after I have been transferred, uh, they made those modifications. They put Mel Apt in, and he's a good fighter pilot, a good test pilot. And he flew a perfect flight plan and increased speed over, mine was 1900 and something, which is about 2.9 Mach number, and he went another 100 miles or so, uh, which broke my record. And uh, unfortunately, though, he was inexperienced in the X-series airplane. And when you run out of propellants, uh, you could be fairly far away from Edwards Air Force Base, although it has little or no concern because the airplane is very light and you can glide back easily. We obviously don't know exactly what happened, but the X-2 cockpit, was so tight and tiny that you were cramped in there. And it also separated. If you got in trouble, they had four explosive bolts that you would blow off the cockpit from the front the, of the airplane. And it had its own chute, which would let you down to a lower altitude if you were high. And then you jettisoned the canopy and climbed out of the cockpit and used your personal chute. Uh, to lower yourself gently to the ground. And as I said, we don't know exactly what happened, but I think what happened was because of his inexperience, he got excited about getting back, turning around and getting back to the base and over control. We knew from test that when you blew the cockpit off the front of the airplane, that you'd be subjected to 15 G's. Well, he was in an inverted spin. So as he was coming down and if he was going to jettison the cockpit, you'd be subjected to 15 negative G's. And with your head right on the canopy, practically touching the canopy, when he blew the cockpit off, he I think, knocked himself out, and he became unconscious, because he came down a long way, uh, and he was apparently climbing out of the cockpit when he impacted the ground and killed himself. Uh, that's all subjective in my line of thinking, and I, we never will know exactly what happened.
2: So we would actually separated that from the air, the, the nose itself? Yeah, he
1: had blown the nose off. And uh, being an inverted split, he had a negative 15 g, and so I think uh, apparently it was, was coming to when he was at the lower altitude, was, and got rid of his canopy and was climbing out when he hit the ground. Real tragedy. Yeah.
2: Now the X3 had a short span, low aspect ratio wing, but it was underpowered. I understand. Oh. I mean, it was, what was your opinion of the X? <laughs> <coughs>
1: The engine that was going to be installed in the X-3 grew in diameter, and it outgrew the X-3, which is a twin-engine airplane. They were going to put two of these in there. So they substituted engines with lower thrust, which made it practically unacceptable. When they were flying it, they kept throwing tread off, off the tires because it took about 200 40 or 50 miles an hour to lift off the lake bed. So what they ended up doing was taking the tread off and you took off and landed with just bare tires, so to speak. Its wing loading was such that it was so high that you couldn't maneuver the airplane. You had to be very delicate with the wheel or you could over control it. It also had a a high T tail. You take off, pull the gear up, and then sit there and then find a climb up to get the altitude. You could get a supersonic and die, but you couldn't get a supersonic straight level, which is, was what it was designed to originally do, to test it at supersonic speeds, uh, and characteristics and controls. And, of course, what little of the knowledge they gained from it, they, could apply to, they applied to the F-104, which also had a high aspect, high wing-loaded wing. Uh, My first flight took off and did some maneuvering, came in to land, and normally you come over the the runway, a lake bed, and you pitch out and come back, cut the power, put the gear, flaps down, came in to land. I came in at 10,000 feet above the lake bed, pitched out, cut my power, put the gear, and flaps down, and went to full afterburn to pull out. Because it was going down like a rock, and it was—it was—you have to be real careful. It was a very delicate, dangerous airplane to fly, particularly on takeoff when you're taking off on bare tires, so to speak. So, although we got some data from it, it wasn't because of the low-thrust engines. It was not a—not a, you could say a very good airplane relative to what you got out of it. Now,
2: the X-4 was a uh, tailless. airplane.
1: Yes. What was the purpose of going without a tail? It was to uh, uh, get uh, data, information on tailless airplanes. Like we had the B-35 and then the B-49, and the X-4 was used Partly to develop those programs, and probably using some of the data now on the B2, which is the north north of Talus. It was a subsonic airplane, about 0.8 Mach number. Nice little airplane to fly, until you try to go supersonic, then it would uncork on you, and you had to be careful with that. So it was just a simple little Talus airplane. It's
2: kind of like a like a shark. Yeah. It's the big mm-hmm. thing up there. In the X-5, the variable uh, incident?
1: Uh... Yeah, it was uh, to research variable sweep angles. It had about the same performance as an F-86. And uh, you would pick up, say, from 20 degrees to 60 degrees or any time in between, and dial that in and punch a button. and The wings would sweep to these various, uh, various uh, angles of attack. And then you can maneuver and get data on what happens at those different uh, sweep angles that you can have. Was that the last of the
2: X-Series that that you flew?
1: uh, Well, we flew the XF-92. Uh, I think it probably was the last X. It should have been an X, uh, probably X-6 or X-7, but they put an XF-92 on it for some reason. It was designed and built and stuck in a wind tunnel with no thought of flying it. But once Consolidated got it in the wind tunnel, it looked like it was fairly good. So they said, well, let's stick an engine in it and go fly it. So they stuck an engine in it and we flew it. And they put flight control systems in it, but they only had one backup. There, I mean, there wasn't any backup flight control system. They, we could get a supersonic in the die, but they, Wanted to get a supersonic straight and level because that was a forerunner of the F 102 and 106 series. So they decided to put an afterburner to try to get a straight level, uh, get supersonic straight and level. And so we flew it, but we, we, the Air Force, didn't think it would go supersonic straight and level, but just consolidated it, so they sold the Air Force and the, buying the 102s. And they had a problem with 102s on speedwise, so they had to recamber the wings and coke bottle the fuselage to get it up to speed. But my last fight in the F- XF-92, I took off from the lake bed. And I had done some landing data tests, I believe. And my master caution warning light came on, which is a big red light up and right in front of your eyeball. And I said, Oh, and I looked down, and my flight control system hydraulic pressure was passing through 1,500 from 3,000 towards zero. And once you lose your flight control system because there was no backup, you lost your flight control. Well, I racked it around and landed on a lake bed, and just as I touched down, the flight control was locked. So I. <laughs> I recommend they're not flying anymore because yeah, we had gotten all the data out of it as we could. But I think they gave it to NASA and they flew some more flights in.
2: That, that was the first of the Delta Wing yes. airplanes? Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. True Delta. They had the X 4, which is Talus, but this was a True true Delta.
2: What about the early ejection seats in those airplanes?
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, they are very. I guess you could say they were a little crude. They were limited obviously on the altitude that you bailed out and the speed that you bailed out. We had a couple airplanes we put Martin Baker seats in, uh, the B-57 for example, and later on they became common in, in other airplanes. I would be reluctant to have used the earlier ones because to clear the tail, they had to increase the power to knock the airplane, knock the seat out out and over top of the vertical tail. And uh, we had some severe back injuries because of that compression, uh, vertebrae compressions. Also, our equipment was such that on high-speed bailouts, uh, Christ helmets and oxygen masks and visors were not adequate to protecting you at high speeds. So this was the same thing with the pressure suits that Jaeger and I used on the X X airplanes. They were very crude. They called them parcel pressure suits because they weren't fully pressurized. They had capsules that run down your arms and your back and your legs. That when your cockpit pressure uh, failed, these capsules would expand and control you, your body, and you had a a, a band around your partial pressure mask which also expanded because above sixty thousand your blood would boil, and uh, that obviously. Did not enhance your longevity. One of my flights in the X-1, a, a canopy cracked on me, and I lost my pressurization, and I became the first man to have <clears throat> a partial pressure suit save my life. It worked very adequately, but they were torture chambers. You did a lot. Of, you had to go and get fitted you know, like a tailor-made suit. You wore underwear underneath, but when You would pressurize a suit, you'd split a lot of capillaries because of the the tightness of it. And you looked like you'd been in a cat fight when you got down, uh, took off the suit. So it was a true torture chamber until they uh, developed the full pressure suit, which is obviously much nicer and more comfortable. It's more like living in a regular environment now. So those early um, crew days, crude days relative to, to ejection seats and uh, partial pressure suits were adequate for those days, for that time period, but not adequate for later on. Like now in uh, our airplanes, F-15, F-16, F-4, you can punch out zero zero, which means zero speed, zero altitude, and still be safe. Uh, you can still punch out at uh, higher altitudes and uh, higher speeds and still uh, be relatively safe. Uh, they have uh, rockets on the seats now that don't give you that sudden jolt, but they build up uh, to make sure you clear the vertical tails and that sort of thing. So there's been an, so much advancement, not only aircraft design and engine design, but also on personal equipment design. Uh, with respect to uh, helmets, pressure suits, flying suits, or now no-mechs, no mex no gloves, which are uh, fire retardant. And uh, you save a lot of lives that way. And it's very fruitful. And I'm kind of glad to have been part of developing these things uh, in the early part of my test, because we were Helping develop G-suits, we'd go in a centrifuge at right field and they whirl you around and You determine where you blacked out and started to haze out and then Turn on a pressure suit and see how much the pressure suit enhanced you to maneuver and that the higher higher G-loadings and each individual is different and uh, When they slowed the centrifuge down and bringing you back to stop you felt like you were tumbling. And it would give you an odd sensation. And that's where I have an advantage over Jaeger. He'd get sick when he slowed down and get nauseous. So I'd tease him about that, uh, amongst other things. (laughs) And it was an interesting era to have been participating in.
2: Fighter pilots are known for their aggressiveness and skill, but what is the difference between a test pilot, do fighter pilots automatically make good test pilots, or what is the difference in your, in your opinion, sir? Well,
1: I don't think anybody can adequately determine. You obviously have to have the love of flying, You also have to have a desire to experiment and do things. And then you obviously have to have the right stuff, like Jager had. And although you may end up in dangerous situations, you also must be able to feel that there's nothing that can happen that you can't eventually take care of and cope control of. Although I lost, I think, 11 pilots during the time when I was out at Edwards for various problems and reasons. You've got to be a volunteer and want to experiment. Whenever I needed new test pilots, they'd come in and I'd interview them. Why do you want to be a test pilot? you like the glamour? And if they just wanted to be a hero, then I wouldn't accept them. I said, are you fearless? Are you afraid to fly? Of course I'm fearless, I'm not afraid to fly. And I would then try to go a little deeper on how fearless they were, because you don't want a guy that's fearless. You want a guy that wants to have respect for problems that he may encounter, and slowly build up to those. uh, Like George Welch, he was fearless, and uh, Ivan Kinslow, who was my protege on the X-2. I think was fearless, because he did the altitude work on the X-2. Unfortunately, uh, he was in an F-104, going to make a chase on a contractor bird, and the engine quit, and he kept trying to get it started until it was too late. And uh, he punched out too too late. So you have these type of people that you appreciate, that they're fearless and they may be good in combat, but not necessarily make a good test pilot because they may go too far in certain tests.
0: After his days at Edwards, General Everest assumed commands throughout the world, finally retiring from the Air Force in 1973. During his years of service, he earned numerous decorations and awards, and in 1989, he was enshrined in the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Pete Everest passed away in 2004. He was 84 years old. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, heroes of our nation on record narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws.